0: I'm a genuine believer of the free economy or free market, but when it comes to climate crisis, we just cannot let the market solve it because it might take time and it may come up with the other wrong solutions because as you look back, the the capital market for a long term, they are usually correct, but the short term, they make a lot of mistakes. So uh, when it comes to the climate change, I've been calling for the government intervention particularly setting the uh, rule book so that the private business is a private investor can really invest in in a direction of the uh, net zero goals.
1: Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world.
0: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
2: Welcome to our Sustainability Leaders podcast. I'm Dan Barclay, CEO of BMO Capital Markets, and today I welcome Hiro Mizuno, Special Envoy of the UN Secretary General on Innovation, Finance, and Sustainable Investments. I had the pleasure of meeting Hero at the Global Milken Conference in October, where we both spoke on a panel about investing in a sustainable business transition. It's truly an honor to be speaking with you again today, and I'm looking forward to what I'm sure will be a fascinating conversation. Coming on the heels of the COP26 Global Climate Conference in Glasgow, the roles of government, non-government, and private sector actors have never been so in the spotlight as they are today, and they will be going forward. I'm hoping today we can speak frankly about climate change, net zero, and what role different sectors will have to play to successfully guide us toward a more sustainable world. Harold, welcome. It's great to have you today. Thanks,
0: Dan. It's my pleasure to join this podcast, and it's also my honor to have a discussion again with you on this sustainable finance topic.
2: That's great. Well, why don't we dive into the conversation? For the benefit of our listeners, Hero, why don't we uh, get an introduction for you and uh, about your role at the UN and how it fits in with the global fight against climate change and a push for a more sustainable planet.
0: Sure. My role as a special envoy is to help the uh, Secretary General to promote the uh, sustainable development goals, but by, you know, the mobilizing more finance. And particularly, there is a notion at the Secretary General that the uh, financial industry has to be a little more innovative to provide more capital to the uh, the sustainable development goals and also we have been talking about the uh, the importance of esg in the investment and in the financing uh, operation of private you know the uh, the financial institutions again that the uh, the un has been aware that the uh, you know just mobilizing the uh, the public sector money is not going to be good enough so we need a private capital to really accelerate the the, uh, transformations to sustainable society and sustainable world. So my role is helping the uh, Secretary General by involving the uh, the financial sector leaders and uh, uh, encouraging them to come up with some more innovative uh, financial scheme to mobilize capital more quickly and more uh, widely to finance sustainable development goals.
2: And do you see uh, anything at COP? Uh, did you feel like it was a success? What were your big takeaways?
0: Well, that's a difficult question to answer in one <laughs> word, because the, uh, it was obviously a success in terms of the, uh, the ambitions. You know, the, uh, we heard a lot of like, a global leaders came up with the new uh, NDCs, nationally determined contributions. Also, some people call it the uh, this COP 26 was the uh, private sector COP because we saw so many CEOs, including yourself, uh, came to Glasgow and made a you know the commitment to net zero uh, transition. So, uh, in terms of ambition and a commitment, you know the I should call it the, it's a great success, particularly as I attended the last two COPs where you know we had big player was totally absent. I mean, America was absent and China was not really there. So, uh, and also the, uh, there is was a still a lot of skepticism among the, uh, the private sector leaders, whether, you know, net zero is something they should use it for their business planning or, you know, the uh, maybe, you know, 2.0. So this time is, I must call it a success because the, the there's a more widely agreed, the, uh, pathway we need to work for is 1.5, not 2.0. So uh, I must say, you know, the uh, COP25, there's a, you know, very, very strongly skepticism among the private sector leaders, you know, about the 1.5 degree scenarios. So it was a success from that perspective. And, uh, but I can feel also sympathetic to the young people protesting outside, calling it the failure. Because you know the there's are some area that we couldn't even deliver a long you know long term long time promise, like uh, you know the uh, climate financing from developed countries to developing countries. you know we agreed six years ago, actually ten years ago to deliver one hundred billion dollar annual climate finance for developed countries and twenty twenty one we still have like a twenty billion uh shortfall, which was you know, a bit embarrassing to be honest. And then it will didn't help to create the uh, the trust or mutual trust between the uh, the north and the south. So uh, we failed on that. And the other, you know, the uh, milestone we you know that we you know we agreed to uh, to deliver a long time ago. We still haven't been able to deliver. So you know, I, I think it's fair to call it a failure from that perspective. But At the end of the day, my answer to your question is, I don't know yet, (laughs) because if the ambition is not backed by the uh, the real actions, we probably should call it the real failure. So uh, I think, you know, it's been less than the, uh, you know, the months since the COP26. And uh, so many, like, uh, you know, the uh, government leader now agree that they have to strengthen or, you know, the uh, improve their NDCs not every five years, but annually, right? So the, uh, the, we, we have one, uh, 12 months to work on it, each country, uh, sorry, each, each government. And uh, when it comes to the private sectors, we made a big announcement, like including G funds. I'm sure the, uh, the BM was a part of it, uh, Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero and uh, more than 450 financial institutions, ranging from the banks to asset owners, asset managers, and, uh, you know, the consultant and service providers, they are now saying we commit to net zero. And uh, Mark Carney says like, uh, you know, $130 trillion is now ready to invest in climate finance, but we really don't have an actual plan how to do it. I think the, uh, Probably it's too early for anybody to call it the success or failure. There's a possibility to fall into both. So, and uh, it's really up to us whether we can actually just uh, come up with actual action to make it success.
2: Yeah, I think you covered off uh, a very wide list of great topics there, Hero. I mean, my observation was it felt very practical, right? And that people were actually talking about the how to get it done, where in the past it felt like we were talking about the theory. And I I very much appreciated that, including some real conversation on the barriers to actually make change happen. You know, inside a big bank, data issues, scope three, how do we actually change the portfolio and invest in what I'll call better outcomes has been the real dynamic over the last little while. And, you know, what what I had in the meetings that I was in in COP were, you know, I would call them realistic conversations about how to move those barriers and, and where to go. You and I spoke about this when we were at Milken. It feels like the world's a very different place now than it was 18 months ago, right? Very, very different. We have real, real momentum. BMO put up a commitment for 300 billion in sustainable finance uh, over five years. We're way through two thirds of that now, and you know, accelerating. And so, when I think about the dynamic and the conversations we're having internally, when I think about the goals we've set as a net zero company. You know, in some ways, that those goals were, uh, as you said, uh, not definable when we set it. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than we knew we had to find a way to get there. But now that we've set it, things are in motion here. You're probably aware we have a climate institute we set up inside BMO, uh, which was really to have a good set of conversations and data around. What does it mean and how does it mean? And when you take a look at your various pathways, what changes do you have to have overall in terms of your business while still supporting the economy to go forward? So I'm actually quite encouraged with the amount of progress we're making. But like you, I can understand how big chunks of those that are looking for climate change, say even with that amount of change, it's not enough.
0: Absolutely. And uh, let me add one more thing, or the big change I observed. Up to COP25, Every time we listen to the developed countries, they are almost like, you know, saying like, oh, it's not our fault, right? We need to really you know, <laughs> grow our economy. And there are millions of people who have no access to the internet or have no access to energy. So uh, we cannot, you know, the shift to the uh, sustainable infrastructure. But it's actually helped, actually, the, the, some of the, you know, the country or the companies who are willing to sell more obsolete or like a non-sustainable you know the technology infrastructure to those developed countries saying like oh they cannot afford it and they want that but this time i was surprised to see as you probably done you noticed that several countries like in the southeast asia and also the south africa they are now saying although look at south africa they still depend on the coal i think 80 or 85 percent of their energy come from the uh, the coal but they commit to net zero and they, you know, they said, we are willing to change, but you guys have a responsibility to help us to do that. Right. So, yeah, it totally changed the dynamics. And I heard a lot of, like from the Vietnam committed to the you know, coal phase out. You know, there's a lot of things which, you know, the countries if we used to be on the other side and just asking for the help and insisting like they need to focus on the domestic growth. Opportunities, but this time they actually putting a pressure on the developed country side. And uh, the other change in the dynamics I noticed was until like a COP twenty five, political leaders always use the uh, private sector as their excuse, not so that or they're not making ambitious commitments, saying like, oh, our industry, you know, leader doesn't agree that the uh, we can do that. But this time it's totally opposite, you know. As you know, the Dan, you just uh, the uh, the pointed out, you know, there are hundreds of the uh, private sector leaders calling for government leadership to set the uh, the rule of the game, so that the uh, you know the private sector can really focus on the transition and the transition to the sustainable you know society. So I think those. Changing the dynamics on the two of them really you know, created the, uh, the momentum. And uh, it made me most hopeful when I started feeling that the, uh, that's changing the dynamics is now setting the stage for COP27 and the COP28.
2: Yeah, and I, would, uh, I would make the same observation on the private sector. Three years ago, two years ago, I had lots of conversations where people would say, the science isn't there, or we're not gonna do it, or I've got, you know, it's not a priority for me, I've got other priorities. Today, when I tour, particularly North America now, I can't think of a meeting in the last 18 months with a senior company official where this wasn't in their top three priorities. And you and I talked about incentive versus penalty uh, when we were uh, together last. And the dynamic that I'm watching now is we're moving from, you know, put a set of rules in place and I'll try to meet the rules to... I'm actually going to change my business. I'm going to change the way my fleet works. You know, instead of having fossil fueled fired forklifts in my factory, I'm going to change that into EV uh, forklifts. Mm-hmm. And I found out I can actually run them cheaper than I could before. And mm-hmm. therefore, I'm actually making money by doing the right thing. And wow. when you start to have that, those types of incentives in someone running their business, whether they're small enterprises or large enterprises, they will make change happen even faster. And it's that I call it a flywheel. And once the flywheel starts to spin and things are going well and you're improving, and you don't view it as a cost to you, but you view it as a benefit, then things really move.
0: Yeah. It's just from the uh, people's perception on the climate change, you know, relative to their business strategy, change from the uh, cost to investment, risk to opportunities. Correct. And uh, that really drives the change. And that's how our capital, you know, the capital market and capitalism really you know, designed for. So the ones that people agree on the uh, the risk and opportunities, you know, the people, you know, the, uh, the system starts spinning very quickly. And uh, that's the another, you know, the uh, positive aspect of the outcome of this COP. Uh, we, I really started seeing that. But as you, Dan, just mentioned over the last two years, every meeting I have with the corporate executive, to some extent, reflecting my my background and my specialties, but the, uh, it just, impossible to have any conversation without talking about ESG.
2: That's right. I, I, I really don't see them anymore. And you know, I was going to reflect back on your opportunity for a company. One of the things for BMO is we've taken a hard look at climate and we started the journey like most people, right? What are the risks? How are we exposed? What should we think about? Then you've got a different pillar, which is who are we as a corporate citizen? You know, We've been carbon neutral since 2010. We started funding all of our power last year with renewables. But as we went through our strategic planning process this summer, climate change, climate transition really came up as the number one revenue opportunity for the bank. Mm-hmm. And when you start to say, okay, that's our best opportunity in the next five years, let's get our resources mobilized. Let's chase it. Let's help our clients. And again, we're in a client business. You know, often people think about banks as the the floodgate on this, but we're really just an intermediary between our clients uh, and capital. And, uh, you know, Once you get to a place where you're starting to put your resources and your thought process around how big that opportunity can be, then magic starts to happen. One of the things that uh, I'd like to get your perspective on is based on your background, you were the CIO of the government pension fund in Japan. So you managed, I, I think it was at the time, and maybe still is the largest sovereign wealth fund, or at least the top five at best, you probably have better knowledge than I do. And you start to think about how banks fit into a low carbon of the transition economy. How do you think about that? What's your perspectives from where you are and ways that we can do? And, you know, a lot of people that will be listening to this podcast are, are the employees at BMO. You know, how do we think about that?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I used to manage $1.7 trillion, um, probably at the at the time, probably now still the, la- la- well, the largest pension funds. But I grew up in the actually commercial banking when I was young and I moved into the uh, asset management. So uh, I have a strong view on the... Um, importance to the bank in this sustainability transition of the world you probably know that the uh the when i started this my advocacy for esg almost five years ago the discussion is about the it's just all about divesting you know right. the uh, we had a huge pressure from the people who are more sort of like a aggressive in the esg saying like a gpif which is my you know pension fund should divest from fossil fuel and the uh you know, some other you know the uh, the socially problematic uh, industry like tobacco. And then um, I always say like, you know, for us, it's easy because it's just a click away or phone call away to divest. Because institutional investor, we can actually sell or buy stock on a bond just by clicking or picking up a phone call uh, to the broker. But when it comes to the bank, you know, the uh, your financing relationship is uh, quite often Bilateral, and uh, you really involve the real relationship, human relationship, and also you carry the relationship with the community their business is operating, and also in many cases you are sort of a last resort uh, for the uh, the SME, a small and enterprise, because they have no access to the capital market, right? So uh, I think the uh, the and also let me just tell you one thing. I always you know the have an opinion against the divestment because divestment doesn't really make any difference because when we sell it, somebody will buy it, right? So the, even the bond as well, when we sell the bond, somebody will buy it and they actually hold it for the better dividend or higher, you know, higher return. So uh, it's just a uh, change of ownership. But bank relationship or bank loans, most of the cases, particularly when it's a bilateral you know, financial uh, relationship, when you cut the, the finance, you actually possibly give them a death sentence. So uh, I think the bank have to deal with more human human way to just to make sure that the uh, you know, what's the consequence of each of your financial decision. But at the same time, the uh, the bank has more direct responsibility to make sure the society or the other uh, industry they are operating in will survive. Right. So. Uh, I always see, like you know, tell that the uh, the people working for me, like you know, your job is much much less painful, much easier than the uh, the the bank because bank, they really have to deal with individual relationship and they have to make sure that the particularly they are the only one financial resource for that they borrower. You know, the bank have to make sure to how to you know when to stop the financing or how to educate them. So, uh, bank has you know the handful of the uh, the job to do. So, uh, you know, I must say, like, you know, I sometimes feel very sorry, and I always feel like instant investor job is much easier. But at the same time, you know, bank is very, very important. And uh, we probably going to talk about, you know, the uh, later that the, uh, the what I call it, the uh, green revolution or sustainable revolution. When we look back, what kind of the play a uh, responsibility what kind of role the bankers uh, are play, bankers played during industrial revolutions, they are the ones who really took the risk and drive the change. So uh, I think the other, you know, I always say like a banker should be very proud of being in that position, but I can really sympathize. It's going to be very hard and painful role to play, but it's a very important role.
2: Yeah, I look at, uh, you know, someone, let's say like a BMO in Canada, right? We're actually just a slice of the entire economy. Right, Our retail bank, our wealth management franchise, our commercial franchise with SMEs, my franchise, which is large borrowers, and really what we are is a slice of all of Canada. And so when you think about the economic growth, the economic policy, your policies really reflect that entire economy. And I think that's the fundamental challenge we have. Like BMO thinks of itself as a community-based bank, right? We invest in the communities we live and work in. Uh, We're fundamental to a prosperous economy. Uh, You can't have a prosperous economy without prosperous banks. And at the same time, I'm with you. We we carry a, a responsibility to make sure that we invest our shareholders' capital and, you know, for the benefit of the country and the shareholders you know, we've got a, a purpose at BMO called to boldly grow the good in business and life. And that purpose is really meant to underpin the way we approach these types of decisions uh, and having the responsibility to make the right choices. And at the same time, you know, when you, you use the word divestment, we get lots of pressure on divestment. I'm not sure that that's actually a smart economic strategy.
0: And also, I don't think that it's a very responsible strategy for the, uh, the banks in, in, in many situations.
2: Well, especially in countries that have a large percentage of GDP comes from natural resources uh, to just pretend that they're going to get turned off. I don't think is responsible to the community that you live and work in. I really don't. One of the things that uh, comes into this, so you've got the private capital, you've got banks, we've got governments. How are you feeling about government policy these days that are actually helping and accelerating the transition? You know, I think of them as going together, right? They're not separate. Business commitment, policy commitment, you know, as we did our, our focus on our targets to meet our commitments under net zero what you find very quickly is your targets will be highly dependent on public policy. And if the policy is, you know, in some part of the world benign and not willing to make change happen, it's very hard for a bank to meet its targets. And conversely, if the public policy is very aggressive, you can actually meet your targets. And so, anyways, your thought process today around where governments are, how they're thinking, whether that's in developed or less developed.
0: Yeah, well, I think the, um, you know, first of all, I'm I'm a genuine believer of the free economy or free market. And uh, I also believe in the market force usually uh, lead us to the, uh, the right you know, solution in the end. But the, when it comes to climate crisis, we just cannot let the market solve it because it might take time and it may come up with the, uh, the wrong solutions because as you look back, the, the capital market for a long term, they are usually correct, but the short term, they make a lot of mistakes. So uh, when it comes to the uh, climate change, I really don't think like we just cannot afford, you know, to just simply depend on the, uh, the market force or like, uh, you know, the per- perfect market hypothesis to solve it. So from that perspective, I've been calling for the uh, government intervention, particularly setting the, uh, the rule book so that the private businesses, a private investor can really invest in, in a direction of the uh, net zero path in net in, in zero uh goals. And then I think the uh some com- you know governments like uh, EU has been you know the uh ahead of us and it just uh, came up with a lot of new guidelines so that the uh, you know the it makes the uh, the private sector I think both feeling comfortable to play and also feeling urged to you know play the uh you know the uh play differently so uh I think that compared to EU, Asian countries, including Japan and uh, United, you know, the North America, has been a little bit slow. But as I touched upon earlier, at this COP26, there's a very clear message, which you know, from private sector, we want the uh, the government intervention, particularly coordinated one, you know, done you and myself grew up in a financial industry and it's very rare for the financial industry to cry for the government intervention. <laughs> so, uh, so I think the, uh, the government heard it. So uh, I think they are probably just feel more encouraged to come up with the, uh, the regulation or like you know the uh, guidelines. And then the other thing which I think is very important is like, uh, you know, like NGOs, and the uh, financial industry ngo and a board never been this <laughs> you know the uh, we actually you know just for the uh, you know when i was running a gpif we u- use several like uh, you know the esg indices and uh, some of them actually get the, uh, the the information for them to you know the uh, create the index or construct the index from the ngos I think now NGO is becoming a very critical player for us to the uh, the shift our you know the financial ecosystem, and then um, also sometimes they play the role of. This time I don't know how many exactly, but if you listen to the uh, the world leaders' speech, many of them mentioned about the young people protesting and the young people very frustrated about our progress. You know. They all not only like showing political will to listen to them, but I think they used it to actually push the agenda. So uh, I think the, the government and the private sector and even NGO or civil society never been disclosed uh, trying to push the agenda in the direction. So uh, I think the government will continue to play a bigger role, at least, you know, the out of like all the SDGs. At least the climate uh the uh, the uh, crisis or climate change is concerned, there is a very very clear consensus we want the government to coordinate and the government to take a leadership
2: yeah and I think about the practical applicability of that there's lots of different places, so one is around carbon accounting
1: mm-hmm. right?
2: which you know you and I have seen in some good conversations around trying to get some global standards on that or at least even North American standards. European and Asian, if you got to even three different, but similar, you'd be a far ways ahead. The other one is the price of carbon. And I think that's probably one of the thorniest issues out there, which is you know, different models, whether it's cap and trade or set price or whatever. But even in Canada, I think we've got 12 or 13 different ways to think about it across the country where, you know, the price of carbon set provincially, not federally Uh, in the U S it's not set. I think other than maybe what two markets or three markets, you know, whereas in Europe, I think they're trying to harmonize that. And it's that harmonization role, which I think is going to be the toughest for governments because they typically get into a room and go to the lowest common denominator as opposed to the most aggressive. And that one for me, when I watched, you know, there's some disappointing things at the end of COP where they couldn't get consensus. uh, And yet we need governments to drive some consensus and some transparency and transferability amongst markets.
0: Yeah, well, but I'm not that pessimistic about the uh, carbon pricing. I mean, I, I've i never been hopeful about the uh, global carbon taxation. I mean, no. that's just, no. we never agreed on any global universal taxation system, right? So uh, how could we just all of a sudden succeed on this, this one? But when it comes to carbon pricing, I, I agree with you, Dan, that the, uh, there are Different, you know, country or different market, they are trying to come up with their own pricing or own trading mechanism. And like, you know, the, uh, I serve on the board of a Tesla and, a, you you know, people know that the Tesla uh, received quite a significant amount of money from the other automaker as the ta- carbon, sort of carbon tax credit. Right. because in europe like they just need you know if they cannot sell enough the uh, zero emission vehicle they need to buy it from the uh, somebody who has more you know capability or room for the uh, Decarbonization. So Tesla, you know, sold a lot of the carbon credit to the uh, some uh, other automakers, and that's in effectively carbon pricing within the industry, right? Correct. Yep. So I think there will be will be a lot of carbon pricing within the industry, within the country, or within the uh, you know very different ones. But here, I don't underestimate the power of the uh, the Wall Street or power of the other uh, financial you know institutions. We always come up with a way to un- arbitrage. So, uh, <laughs> well, so we can call it
2: create change. We could call it create change, you call it arbitrage, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so uh, I, you know, I mean even just a crude oil,
0: we have several market and several different pricing, Correct. but yep. we have a lot of thousands of people trying to make money by uh, you know they're creating arbitrage. So I think the uh, carbon pricing, I'm actually don't underestimate the uh, the probably private you know the financial market will start pricing carbon. And uh, it will be traded or priced, uh, you know, the accordingly, you know, the, in a global financial system. So, uh, I think the uh, the carbon pricing is, is is going to happen, and uh, it's once again it's very important because. Financial leaders raise the voice in a Glasgow. We want carbon pricing. Right. right? So uh, I think there's no reason, no, you know, the, the any stock exchange to start it. And I uh, I met with several of the uh, CEO of the uh, the stock exchange in uh, Tokyo and the other places, and they all talking about the uh, how to you know list their carbon. Uh, so uh, I, I think the uh, you know the this is where I can you know I can count on the uh, market force.
2: Yes, I agree. And I think your oil example is a very good one, right? Which is we have two or three big benchmarks uh, around the world. And then everything else that's not the benchmark is priced relative to that. Uh, But you actually have enormous liquidity, uh, both financial and physical, because of that. And so, yeah, I think that's a great, great parallel to how you could see the market evolving. I want to go back to uh, something you mentioned earlier, which is your sustainability revolution or your green revolution. Why don't you take us through your thesis there and uh, what you've been observing in the last while?
0: Well, I heard that from the, uh, the Vice President Al Gore about the five years ago at the Milken Global Conference. And uh, my first reaction is, well, I understand why he wants to talk about the climate change, but the uh, is it worse, you know, the uh, cold revolution? <laughs> you know, just, uh, <laughs> that's my first reaction. <laughs> and then... Because my sort of definition of revolution is it should really change our lifestyle. It should change every aspect of our society and our our businesses. And uh, at that time, I didn't feel like a climate change is going to be that significant or that impactful. But I had to change my opinion. Just one year later, when I attended the the Milk and Global Conference, I sat down several of uh, the panel discussions, starting from like a... You know the um, education to bioscience, and then like a national security and etc. And then probably five or six panels. And uh, I just noticed there's at least at least one panelist mentioned sustainability in their panel discussion across the different topics. And then just started feeling like oh, revolution is happening because sustainability is really affecting. Every different type of business. And then I started thinking about it because the other, when the industrial revolution, you know, the finished, people's lifestyles totally changed. And I started, like, you know, the picturing, like, you know, once we now, we, you know, we, we get all the renewable energy to uh, power our lives and we, you know, the uh, we recycle more and everybody just managed to find a way not to exploit the resource and we stop deforestation and etc. And I just felt like, oh, actually, our life will be very, very different. And then, you know, I started saying like, oh, actually, we are now getting into the uh, green or sustainable revolution. And then... The reason why I recently started emphasizing that was, again, I just want to, you know, the, uh, stress the importance of an important role the financial industry can play, right? right? I mean, uh, I, unfortunately, we grew up when, you know, there is not the big, like, uh, you know, industrial change, right? Because it's been, it's about 100 years ago. So the, uh, I grew up in the asset management industry, like uh, my job is, to sit, sit on the fence and uh, pick the good one and dump the bad one, right? That kind of <laughs> <us. laughs> uh, thing. was no that's responsibility and what's going on on the, on the ground. But I think this uh, revo- the uh, green revolution and sustainability revolution, I think the, uh, the financial sector has to play more proactive role like the, we you know our predecessors played during the industrial revolution. That's the reason I started using uh, this revolution as to describe. You know, we have to wake up. You know, the uh, the look at the uh, what the uh, the financial you know the uh, professional played to accelerate the uh, the you know the industry revolution. They took a lot of risk. They really accelerated a change, and uh, that's what I think we need to you know uh, take as our responsibility as the as the industry.
2: Yeah, and I agree with that. I think uh, we've seen a lot of it this year. In terms of, you know, pushing the industry to think about new things, I had a lot of really interesting conversations at COP26 on the demand side as opposed to supply side. Mm. And supply meeting, you know, we can try and get them to stop producing fossil fuels. But in the world where you have that influence, public companies, uh, Western economies, that works. But in places where you have no influence, you know, whether it's the Middle East or other places, you know, if you're not stopping the consumption of oil and gas, you're not changing the problem. Right. You're just bringing it from a different place. And so the whole dynamic around how do we create, and I like your word revolution, because it's probably the right thesis, is actually a change in the way we think and operate, right? I don't know what the right definition for revolution is, but it's got to be close to that. So BMO has an impact investment fund here that we've set up, and the goal was to deepen our knowledge. That was the fundamental goal. Uh, It's meant to be venture capital. It's meant to be early stage. It's focused on ESG. So there's definitely some climate in there, as we've been talking about. We're focused on uh, new technologies. Uh, In lots of ways, we're trying to find things that have a good chance of commercialization. I wouldn't say it's true science, but working for a while uh, on commercial. I've been struck with so many conversations in the last little while about uh, when we think about energy transition, there has to be new things. And whether they're new business models, new operating models, or they might be new technologies. I'm curious in some of the things you've seen in the last while that got you really excited about investing in innovation, investing in change around the energy transition.
0: I always feel like, you know, the, uh, throughout our history, humanity solved the, uh, the most of the, uh, the social problem with innovation. And uh, that's how we managed to keep our, you know, the, um, the economy growing while the, uh, you know, the uh, improving quality of our life. Now we are talking about that we just need to solve this uh, climate crisis to, first of all, maintain our quality of life because it's gonna be threatened by a lot of natural disasters. But if we manage to really put things together to achieve sustainable development goals, our quality of life will be better. And then to achieve that, I think innovation will be a key driver. But one thing I just wanted to say is like, you know, given the urgency of the climate change, we just cannot, Invest in innovation, hoping some innovation will solve the problem. Right? We just need to get the our hands dirty and are trying to change the our you know e- existing like you know the uh, system. And we probably need to make the other uh, painful transition of the uh, the infrastructure we have been depending on. But I'm very hopeful that the uh, you know throughout the human history we always come up with an innovation to solve it. So. I think the what we we should hope for is even without innovation we should be able to draw our you know trajectory to net zero and the, if the innovation really happens it will happen quicker or less painfully right so uh, i think that's what the i'm expecting from the innovation the area of innovation i'm very interested in like i'm very excited obviously there are a lot of like uh, you know the innovation in uh, Sustainable energy and sustainable transportation, and that Tesla is leading uh, EV trans—you know—transformation of the uh, that, uh you know the auto industry, and uh, now you know all the other uh, car makers following the uh, uh, you know the uh, power suit to you know to to shift the, uh, the, the transportation to uh, electrified one, and then. I also serve on the mission board of uh, Danone, which is the French food conglomerate. And we talk about um, that. We hear a lot about the, the bioscience trying to make the agriculture farming less polluting. So uh, I think the innovation is that, you know, you know, the ranging from the biochemical to like uh, actual physical science. So there are a lot of different ways that the, uh, the innovation can surprise us and really, you know, the uh, reduce our pain in our transition to sustainable, uh, sustainable society. But um, as it's innovation, it's hard for me to say this is the area we will get the really big innovation. But so I think the uh, your approach of like uh, creating a venture capital and uh, the uh, putting hands in uh, several different area is gonna be. Only way for us to really get the better sense of where we can, you know, get the innovation to really
2: save us. Well, like you, hero, I'm an optimist. Uh, I also believe in innovation. We'll find the right answer, and I also believe, uh, as you just said, that the pace isn't fast enough. And so, how do we spur more innovation? How do we take more risk? I, you know, in addition to the things you talked about, uh, I've been spending some time in the construction industry. Things like putting more carbon density into concrete which when you think about how much concrete we use every year, you know, has a magical ability uh, to capture things like that. And so, you know, the net extraction we actually need eventually. And so, you know, for me, that's one I've been focused on a fair bit. Let me wrap up with a big thank you. I think it's been great to hear your thoughts. Great to see you again. I love that we closed our call on innovation and the need to change pace. It's been great to have you. It's great to see your leadership. Thank you for what you've been doing. Please keep doing it and uh, it's been great to have you on our podcast and I uh, look forward to seeing you again somewhere somehow in uh, in the race to a net zero world.
0: Thank you very much. Looking forward to continued discussion with you and I'm really looking forward to seeing like a BMO's leadership in the sustainable finance. That's great. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week.